0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very excited today because we get to talk about a book that I think goes right to the heart of a lot of what we're interested in on the New Books Network because it is a book, in some senses, about books. Um, It is titled The Chapter, A Segmented History from Antiquity to the 21st Century, published by Princeton University Press. Um, And as you might expect from that title, it asks a question that is both incredibly obvious and incredibly not obvious at the same time. Why do books have chapters? I admit, very good question that I never thought about until reading this book. But having read it, I am absolutely thrilled to welcome the author, Dr. Nicholas Dames, to the podcast to tell us all about the answer to something that anyone listening to something called the New Books Network is definitely going to be interested in. So, Nicholas, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast.
0: It's a pleasure, Miranda. Thanks for having me.
1: Before we get into all things chapters, could you please start us off introducing yourself a little bit and explaining why you decided to write this book?
0: Sure. I, I'm a professor of English and comparative literature at Columbia University University. I'm also a literary critic at various public venues. Um, my field, I guess you could say, is the history and theory of the novel, but I also serve as an editor. I'm co-editor-in-chief of Public Books, which is an online magazine of arts and ideas. And uh, there I do some criticism as well, but I suppose my, my primary purview is the novel. And I should say that the, the book, um, this book I wrote, the chapter, is very much a book written from the perspective of somebody who studies novels, not other kinds of books. So that's its trajectory. It does head towards the, the novel, essentially. Um, as far as why I wrote this book, and it, it did take me quite a while, I, I would say that at a, you know, at a certain point in a scholarly career, it's a natural impulse to address a big unanswered question that has nagged at you for a long time. and And that question actually was... Uh, posed to me by a friend over drinks quite a while ago. I want to say almost two decades ago where this is not an academic friend of mine, but he did ask me, presuming that I would know the answer to this. Why do novels have chapters was his question. And then kind of as a follow-up, what, what work do they do? And I was struck by my complete inability to answer that question. Uh, it, It was, it's one of those sort of, why is the sky blue questions that can be can seem both stunningly obvious, but but I think profound, and and it, it sort of staggered me in a good way. And as I thought about it, the question seemed to me to point to something fundamental about how novels train us in different kinds of temporal rhythms, and how those rhythms change slowly, and I think more slowly than fashions in plots or topics or character types. So I wanted then to. In writing the book, to think about the novel as a technology for habituating readers into certain kinds of temporal rhythms, I will, you know, I should note, I suppose it's as part of the biography of the book that I was also inspired to continue working on it by actually having children and reading to my children and encountering their getting used to chapters over time and the kinds of questions that chapters produce for them. You know, why does the story stop here? Does this mean we have to stop reading? what is the chapter title and why is it called that you know can you explain to me why this chapter title is what it is so that these kinds of what feel to me like very deep and um sort of habituation type questions about fiction how you orient yourself in reading fiction kept me going in writing the book but I think the other thing about the book that, was important to me as I was writing. And the reason that I, was, I continued to remain compelled by the project is because it suggested that I'd have to think in a very long historical framework. And that wasn't something I'd been able to do up to that point in my career, but I was very eager to try. I'd been kind of impatient with the boundaries of historical periodization as they tend to work in the discipline of literary studies. And I wanted a project that would allow me to track a certain artifact through a long durée which in this case ended up being something like 2000 years. And that that project of course would kind of take me outside my immediate expertise. It would take time to get up to speed in other fields. I, you know, as one of the examples here I'd have to start to learn some things about biblical paleology and and codicology. So that meant it would take longer <laughs> perhaps than ideal it meant I'd have to wait a bit to to actually even begin writing it, but uh, after doing some of that self-education, I then finally found myself in a position to, to start writing.
1: Wonderful. Thank you so much for taking us through kind of the process of coming up with this um, and also giving us so many threads about what ended up in the book that we can then pull on for the rest of our conversation. So very helpful start. Um, now, my next question, I admit, might sound like I'm kind of skipping to the end, And it's only question two. But I think it actually might be really interesting to kind of start with almost in some ways the answers you came up with having done this massive long durée study. And then we'll kind of poke through and investigate how this has developed over time. So listeners, I promise I'm going somewhere sensible with this. Nicholas, would you mind taking us through the 10 sociological norms that you've come up with to understand the evolution of the chapter over time?
0: Sure. I'm happy to to list them briefly and and try to very quickly explain what I mean by them. And I I think of them as 10 sort of norms for the chapter for the purposes of differentiating a chapter from other kinds of temporal units. Because, of course, a chapter could be understood as kind of like a paragraph a page, a stanza, a dramatic scene. And and those similarities can, I think, be pertinent, but I I wanted my list to develop distinctions, the the things that seem particular to the chapter and not to other kinds of segmentation. So the first norm actually is exactly what I just said. It's, It's the chapter's distinctiveness, that it's not going to be explicable by analogy to other kinds of segmentation, even if It is often the case that writers themselves try to make that analogy. So, uh, along those lines, I quote uh, it's the chapter, a chapter beginning in Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre, where the narrator, Jane narrator, says, uh, I I, I will open this chapter, uh, chapters open in the same way that that, uh, the curtain is raised on a new scene. And I cite this to say, well, this is a recurrent temptation in thinking about. Chaptering, but it doesn't actually work <laughs> because chapters are not scenes, um, nor are they explicable with reference to cognitive models of how the mind processes time. Not not there's a there's a mismatch there, and I, and I want to say a bit about um, current cognitive science uh, and particularly its development of this category of something called event segmentation, how perception is temporally segmented spontaneously, and how we, you know, the word that cognitive scientists use is chunking, how we chunk time in order to store information, the, the way in which cognitive science discusses chunking actually looks nothing like the way in which chapters are tend to be organized. So distinctiveness, we'll put it that way, the uh, chapters are very much its own thing. The second, I will say, is something like invisibility, that chapters are so common across so many different kinds of books, so conventional that it is very hard to actually see them. They tend to pass out of comment, or we tend to train ourselves not to pay attention to them as significant kinds of form because of their commonness. Going along with that, I'd say the third uh, is that they are habitually untheorized. There is almost no tradition of thinking about the chapter theoretically or formally or in any way to attempt to lay down rules for it in any genre. Um, chapters seem really, really resistant to rules, to any kind of grammar. Um, I've, you know, my research, I kept waiting for what I always would joke was a kind of smoking gun, some uh, some piece in the archive, some letter from, let's say, an editor or publisher to an author explaining what the rules of chapter construction might be, and I never really found it. Um, as if because it is so thoroughly conventional and ubiquitous, it seems not to need theorization. The fourth, though, might cut slightly against the grain of what I just said, in that chapters also are oddly, have this tendency toward metafictionality. That is, they do strive quite often to try to explain their presence uh, because there's an oddity to them, particularly in fiction. It is the moment when the fictional illusion breaks. And uh, at those moments of break, there can be a kind of clustering of comments about why the chapter breaks here. So there's often a kind of turn out of the frame, so to speak, to talk about the frame. This is characteristic of the way chapters often appear. The fifth would be that they're linear. Um, and their linearity is key. What I mean by that is that they very rarely uh, tend to refer to higher organ- higher order organizational structures. So a thought experiment I like to offer people here is to ask them of super canonical fictions, fictions that uh, most readers of fiction will tend to know or have read at some point, usually in the process of their schooling, right? And ask them, how many chapters does this novel have? How many chapters does Moby Dick have? How many chapters does War and Peace have, or or Middlemarch? And no one knows, right? It would you know it would be a kind of stupendous act of memory to remember that because the total number is not relevant. That is, that there isn't a kind of numerological schema into which chapters fit. The 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 sort of function of chapters linearity. Um, one thing after another, marking off stages in a linear process rather than adding up in a particular way. Sixth, I would say that while chapters group things, actually I would say that perhaps their primary function is that they're, they interrupt. They are interruptive. They're a, they're a technique of pauses or caesuras. And it's the pause or the break that will become, I think, more important to their function, their usual design, than anything about what they contain. Um, seventh, and I, I this is, uh, I think, extremely important, is that they, unlike other ways of thinking about segmentation in here, I'd suggest something like the page would be a, a good counter example. Chapters don't have three-dimensional physical reference. Um, you can't, think about a chapter as something that you hold in your hand or grasp or any, in any way that has a, a typical kind of materiality to it, it's much more notional than that. And this has consequences, I think, partly in, in terms of the sense of its flexibility and its and, and the difficulty in theorizing it. But it, it's not entirely material in the way that other kinds of, of uh, let's say, episodic conventions tend to be and i think there's always a kind of problem when chapters are analogized to material modes of segmentation so an an example i'll give you is um particularly in uh, babylonian textuality i'm thinking of something like the epic of gilgamesh although one could have other examples Um, epics like that are organized by tablets um, the tablet is a unit, and it's interesting that the Babylonian word for those tablets often gets translated, particularly in, in to uh, contemporary English, as chapter. But I don't. I think that's a faulty translation, a faulty analogy, because of course the chapter isn't limited to a particular material object, either a page or a tablet, um, and you know it does does not have that kind of materiality. So we're talking about something that works slightly differently. The eighth uh, would be a historical claim I want to make about the chapter, that it starts as a tool, uh, as essentially an editorial tool for organizing the contents of a text. And over the long course of its history, mutates from being something like a tool to being an aesthetic form. And that means a lot of things. It means a general shift from being something that is imposed onto a text or inserted into a text that had previously existed without chapters to being a form that one writes within. The the ninth and 10th, I suppose, are are also finally about about the chapter's history. Uh, The ninth being that it has a very strange historical path because it never receives any kind of explicit theorization. Its history is marked by these weird amnesias and also reappearances that there's no conscious tradition or lineage that the chapter tends to carry forward. Instead, there's this tendency to kind of rediscovering elements of how chapters had worked and then reusing them. And also, as I said, this, this recurrent amnesia, it's something I noticed in my history, is that at every stage of the chapter's development, there's a tendency to claim that chapters are new and that, they've, that, that there's something novel about them, something that is now, just now being developed. Whereas, in fact, uh, the very claims that are being made for them as new had been made 100, 500 years prior. And then lastly, and I suppose this is maybe my something about my subject position or training, I do think that it's in the novel that the chapter achieves its, its, I suppose, flourishing, maybe because, and we can maybe talk about this later, it's in the novel, it's in a narrative form where the chapter's presence is maybe the most uncomfortable, uh, the most at odds with the form in some way, but that actually makes it uh, its most interesting. So those are the ten, I suppose, and I'm happy to talk about any of the uh, any of those in more detail. But I hope that helps sketch out the parameters of the argument. Hmm.
1: No, it does a great job of giving us many different things to pick up. Um, so thank you for that uh, wonderfully succinct version. I almost feel bad because in the book you get to like go into all the detail about them, and here <laughs> I'm like, no, just do it quickly. <laughs> right. um, but we've we've sketched it out as you said. So I'd like to pick up first. Um, I think. I guess this is most related to, I suppose, the eighth principle, the kind of the creation of the chapter as a tool. Can you help us understand then kind of when, why books began to have chapters? Mm
0: -hmm. Um, Sure. And the first thing I'll say, and it was a surprise to me when doing my research on this initially, is that when we say that uh, when did books first have chapters, we need to remember that Again, something surprising. The book form in which chapters first existed was not the Codex. Chapters pre-exist the Codex. Um, They existed in ancient scrolls, even as I suggested in ancient tablets. Um, So the chapter is not native to the Codex. This is peculiar for various reasons. It would seem as if chapters are an odd fit with the scroll book. And I, I can say a bit more about that in a second. But the first appearances of chaptering or as it was called capitulation that is dividing texts into these units and those units being labeled and those labels then being indexed to what we would now call a kind of table of contents that technique of essentially textual design is essentially the product of the kind of late roman republic early empire and it's associated with Almost exclusively in that period, informational texts. That is, compendia of knowledge, quasi encyclopedias devoted to certain fields of knowledge like medicine or law or natural history or language. So, you know, an excellent example of this would be Pliny the Elder's Natural History from the first century. And Pliny's text is chaptered, and those chapters are titled and then indexed into a list uh, interestingly enough that list of chapter titles as we might now call them actually forms its own scroll so there's this something kind of interesting clumsy uh, about this which is that one would first take the scroll that contains the list look down that list for the particular question that you want to answer the particular kind of content you want to read about identify where that is and then find that passage. So the short answer, I suppose, to give you here is that the chapter is initially a technique for sort of managing information overload. When there seems to be too much information to take in easily, and when you need a tool to help you navigate that excessive information, the chapter is the tool that develops to satisfy that need. It provides the reader with a map of what a text contains and it allows them to find what they're looking for easily and without reading the whole text to do so. So the term that usually gets attached to that is discontinuous access. You're not reading these texts from start to finish. That would be an inefficient and somewhat pointless way to read something like these compendia. The chapter is a way to locate where your information is sitting and how to find it very quickly. So it's a a locating and indexing device, but that means two things, right? That means division, that means, you know, essentially fragmenting the text and labeling, finding a way through the label to link the unit to the index. And it does turn out to be the case that those labels may be, at least in the ancient text, the most important element of capitulation, how those labels work and and what kinds of syntactical forms those labels come in. Um, how concise they can be, how playful they can be. That's really, I think, almost the primary um, aspect of the tool in antiquity. But again, the thing I will stress, these are not fictional or narrative texts where the chapter originates. They originate in informational texts. Hmm.
1: No, that that makes a lot of sense. Again, the idea of kind of processing information and trying to make sense of it without having to read the whole thing straight through. thinking about kind of these words of fragmenting and uh, indexing, and of course, the idea implicit in that, that there's a lot of subjectivity and choices being made here. If we're thinking of ancient texts, I was not surprised to kind of turn the next page after this bit of the book and find a discussion of the Christian gospels. Because if we're talking about how to organize material um, and decisions that are made that influence how it's read, that seems like kind of an unsurprising thing to find in this sort of history. Um, but it was fascinating to read in the book, your discussion that we can in some ways see the history of the Christian gospels as a natural experiment in the history of the chapter and the development and trials and evolution of the chapter as a tool, as you've just described. So can you take us through what that looks like in this case?
0: Sure. I, you know, it, it, it occurred to me if one goal of my book was to chart the changing sense of how chapters organize, particularly narrative, the only way one could adequately do that, right, would be to have a text that was chaptered differently at different historical moments that you you needed to kind of control to the experiment. And that turns out to be exceptionally rare, except in the case, let's say, of the Christian gospels, where you have the same texts segmented differently over something like nine hundred years of time, over essentially from the period from around the early fourth century up until the early thirteenth century, those texts are continually redivided. You know, in ways that are sometimes quite subtly different and other times widely distinct from each other. But with each different segmenting system, there's a new conception of what a unit should look like and and what in that sense, chaptering should do. And as I said, when I speak about widely divergent, um, some of those chaptering systems of the gospel divided into units that are at times two or three sentences long. Um, Of course, the chaptering system that we now have in our Bibles, and that has existed since the early 13th century, are significantly longer than that which means, of course, there are fewer chapters than might have been the case in the fourth or fifth centuries. So what does that mean, I suppose, is the question for me about the expansion of the size of these chapters. More importantly, maybe even than that, when a given editor or editors looks to some, a text like a gospel and tries to figure out what are the places in it where a pause or a break can be inserted, what are they looking for? Um, how do those, what, what's their sort of general rule of thumb as far as how a unit is to be understood? And that turns out to change quite a bit. And the answers given are often extremely idiosyncratic to us, I think, although I think in some ways the most idiosyncratic of these models is the one that lasted is the early 13th century model. Um, This is, this is, that's why I call it a kind of natural experiment. You can see that the thinking changes because the text remains the same, um, over time. And there's a, this is a kind of recurrent feature of the history of the chapter over time. The chapter expands in size, um, that, that just seems to continually reoccur within certain genres that chapters start small and grow. I've never known quite what to make of that, but it is very much the case in the history of the chaptering of the Gospels. Um, but as I said it is not just size it is something about the conception of what counts as a unit that shifts and I could talk about some details about uh, you know these different conceptions of the units but just to say at, at the outset that there is no consensus about this over those 900 years, it, and, and it seems as if the, um, uh, the answers have to continually be, be revised.
1: Mm. I think to me, that was the most interesting part. Um, that kind of, it isn't, we, as you said, we don't think about a chapter now, but clearly mm. there was so much thinking and tweaking and tinkering happening in this process that there isn't kind of a standard, ah, we've arrived at it. Now it's started and we're all done now, right? right? It keeps evolving over such a long time period.
0: There is, and it was instructive to me to read, uh, I do write in the book a bit about particularly 18th century Bibles where there was a tendency in 18th century uh, biblical translation to include prefaces by the translator or translating committee in which they apologized for their use of the chapters from the 13th century because, and they would often mount arguments about why these actually are bad, Um, They're often, you know, they're mistakes. They place chapter breaks in the middle of scenes. In one famous case, I think from the Gospel of John, a chapter is inserted in the middle of a sentence. And they will apologize for this and suggest different options, suggest that uh, perhaps it could be done differently again, or perhaps even in a kind of utopian way we can get rid of chapters in the Gospels. But they never do it because the chapter had become, those particular chapterings had become so habitually useful that to change them no longer seem possible. So the only option they have is to note the the particular flaws of the system that now exists and sort of throw their hands up and shrug as if to say, well, there's nothing we can do about it other than note that they're they're badly done. Um, That's fascinating because at least at that moment, there was a kind of consciousness of the biblical chaptering as something done at a particular historical moment that had been done many different times and that could be done better or differently, that consciousness wanes after the 18th century. Those, that, those, that sort of commentary just simply isn't even present in uh, Bibles really from the, from the 19th century onward. So now they've become thoroughly naturalized. And it is a, a question I, I enjoy asking students, presenting them a text, something like a gospel and saying, when, from when do you think the chapters date? The general assumption is that they must come from the writing of the text. And so there's often a kind of surprise when I point out, actually, these things were produced, this particular chaptering system, something like, you know, 1200 years after the the original composition of the text. And they have nothing to do with the composition of the text. It's an editorial choice made at a particular moment for a particular set of purposes that just seems to have lasted in our case.
1: Hmm. All right. Well, I think that usefully highlights, um, as you said, that the editorial choice aspect of chapter development. So if we focus on that piece of it, but move away from the Christian gospels, otherwise, I mean, there's so many more things I could ask you about that one. But if we move our story along chronologically, focusing on this idea of sort of editorial intent, how and why do chapters develop and change if we move to the 15th century?
0: Right. I mean, I, I, I do think about the, a certain moment really around the origin of print where the chapter it ta- begins to really attach itself um, now not to scripture or informational texts, but to prose narrative. And uh, in the cases I look at, it is still a case that the chapters are introduced into the text by editors or um, printers even, right? Printers and editors usually in the 15th century being the same thing. Um, these early prose narratives use chapters differently. They use it not for the purposes of indexing. So suddenly the chapter has completely lost its function as a locating device. Sometimes these chapters don't even exist in the form of tables of contents. They're just interruptions and numerations of the text. So you can no longer use them to locate yourself. Partly because, of course, these texts are prose narratives, so they presume linear reading. You wouldn't open one of these texts and look through a table of contents to see where you want it to begin. You're supposed to be reading them sequentially. And I, I call that uh, deinformationalizing. I guess that's a maybe slightly clumsy term to describe the way in which the content of the labels no longer actually has much meaning as far as imparting information to you or performing some kind of locating function. Instead... I think there are two guiding rules that start to happen in the 15th century. One is that the chapter starts to be understood as a technique of pausing, as almost like aeration. Where in this continuative narrative, continuous narrative text, can you insert a place to press the pause button and to let the text actually linger on a certain precise moment Again, not for the purposes of location, but for the purposes of uh, what I almost think of as kind of aesthetic purpose of, uh, you know, again, to use a different comparison to a different medium freeze frame, um, some moment that is meant to catch the reader uh, and allow that moment to breathe in the space of the pause. So that's one aspect of aesthetics. And that's a kind of rhythmic uh, aesthetics that I think begins to develop in the 15th century. The other is actually visual. So my, my example here is uh, William Caxton, the first English printer, and his edition particularly of uh, Sir Thomas Mallory's Mort d'Arthur, the, the cycle of Arthurian stories. Caxton performed, uh, Caxton received his manuscript, and in somewhat complicated ways, what he did is he introduced into that text a little over 500 chapter breaks And I wanted to look at that to show how he is thinking about rhythmic pauses. He's also thinking about the visual appearance of the text block itself. So part of his understanding of what his task was is to never present to the reader two facing pages, two text blocks when you open the codex in which there is not white space. Um, that the, the visual appearance of the text block has to be aerated with white space. That has almost nothing to do, of course, with the text itself, but it's, it's something about the visual pattern of textual information that he's interested in renovating. Um, for various reasons, uninterrupted text blocks are now considered to be tedious or... Uh, literally tiring to the eye or in need of some kind of alternation with blankness and so that also enters into his thinking and there has to be a kind of interesting series of really local particular compromises he's making between on the one hand saying where is the place in this narrative where i think a, a, a breath could be introduced or a pause could be introduced and then thinking about where on the page does that moment occur and have I introduced enough breaks within a certain parameter of this break in order to make sure that there's not uninterrupted text for the reader simply looking at the, at the book visually? Those two things don't necessarily go together very well, um, but he managed to make them work. And it, it, it's a, I think I, I really wanna stress when I write about Caxton how difficult a kind of act of juggling that must have been particularly as he's, of course, the thing doesn't even yet exist in print. He has to plan this out even before setting the page in type. Seems to me a fiendishly complicated task, but uh, I think that is in fact uh, what uh, printers like Caxton in the 15th and even into the 16th century were doing. But again, the main point here is none of this has anything to do anymore with the indexical or locating function of the chapter. That now is is essentially entirely vestigial. It can be, you can joke about it, you can make references to it, but it ceases to function.
1: Hmm. No, that that's definitely an important um, transition from what you were telling us earlier about. Um, I'd like to ask you to help us kind of understand another transition because as you so helpfully pointed out with the gospels and with this example as well, I can just imagine him in his workshop being like, hang on, how would this actually work? <laughs> um, The people doing the chaptering have not really been the authors um, up until this point. But obviously, especially once we get into kind of prime novel territory, that very much changes. So can we go towards that, um, looking in the 19th century at this point? And you, I think, very helpfully take us through the kind of author side of things and the changes of the chapter when we get to novels um, through two quite famous, I think, examples. Um, Certainly, I smiled when I read that one of them was Tolstoy's War and Peace. I'm like, yeah, if you're going to talk about chapters, that's definitely one to cover. Um, You also talk about Gaskell's Wives and Daughters. So what can we learn from these two pieces about how the chapter develops from where we've just been in the 15th century once we get to the 19th century and really have serialized novels?
0: So, let me start by saying something about that, that comparison between Tolstoy and Gaskell, um, you know, whose novels come out within a few years of each other in the 1860s, which is part of the reason for the comparison. I, I wanted to sort of provide a snapshot in time of what a chapter looked like circa 1865. Um, the odd part of that comparison, and this goes to what you, what you mentioned in your question, Tolstoy, of course, wrote in chapters. That is, the chaptering is entirely his own devising. That's not the case with Gaskell, interestingly. So it, even into the latter half of the 19th century, it is still possible for an author to cede control over the chaptering of their own text to editors, which is weirdly enough what Gaskell does. It, I wouldn't, it's by no means the majority choice in the 19th century, but it is st- still something that can be done. What she did was, and I, I do reproduce parts of the manuscript so you can see how it worked, she wrote her manuscript without any breaks, and then submitted it to her editors, who looked for places much as Caxton would have done in the early 15th century, or ancient editors would have done with the Gospels in the fourth century, looked for places to introduce chapter breaks and titles. Um, and yet, and I think this is, this is part of the peculiarity I wanted to bring out, despite the fact that Tolstoy is doing it himself, Gaskell is entirely ceding it to her editors, or almost entirely, um, there are some places in the manuscript where she inserts. Um, she'll, she'll ask that she'll ask them to place a chapter break there. But the way she asks is almost like, "Well, I know you're you're in control of this, but I would like one here." It's very odd. Despite the difference in how those chapters were produced, both authorially and editorially, they look very similar. Um, they they work. They're very very close in form. And partly that is because these chapters within these long narrative texts face an almost identical conceptual problem, which is that both Tolstoy and Gaskell fundamentally do not believe that time is segmented. Um, they, they, their understanding of time is that it is completely continuous and that any segmentation of time we introduce into it is unacceptable, it's, it's fallacious, it's arbitrary, um, it doesn't reflect our lived experience of time. Time does not have divisions. That's the, in many ways, argument both texts are making. Tolstein is it, War and Peace is full of quite uh, overt argumentation about this, where every time particularly in some of the historical essays in War and Peace, every time he dis- you know, he discusses, uh, particularly in the history of, of the Napoleonic Wars, he discusses uh, what has often been understood as a transition point in the war. He will argue against that. He's like, well, there is no such thing as a transition point. There's just linear processes, right? You can't say that this or that moment um, is actually a transition because that transition, in fact, it was already long in preparation. And didn't in fact change anything. So there's, there's this commitment on both of them to thinking about time as absolutely undivided and undivisible, indivisible, and yet they're chaptered. So I suppose you could say that the paradox they're wrestling with is that on the one hand, a, a, a sort of conceptual commitment to the uh, indivisibility of time combined with a sense that the divisibility of narrative is kind of indispensable somehow. We need the thing that doesn't actually have any real existence. We need to feel that time passes through phases or periods or significant units. We need to feel that there are breaks or pauses or moments of transition, and they provide those for us but provide them for us in the mode of continually saying these don't actually have any phenomenological reality. Um, they're not out there in the world. They're just a kind of convenience our minds tend to use to kind of lay a grid over temporal experience. So what I mean by that, I suppose, is that these novels are in a kind of argument with the very format in which they appear. And as it, that is true, overtly for Tolstoy, I think somewhat more implicitly for Gaskell, um, but I I think in identical ways. There's there's this kind of unease with the very thing that they nonetheless feel they have to include. I mean, it does suggest that chapters are in 1865, like absolutely compulsory Um, to write a novel without them seems at that moment impossible, but you can mount an argument against them even while using them. And that seems to be the case here.
1: All right. I was already going to ask my next question anyway, but you've in fact set up the comparison um, and in some ways the kind of stark comparison very helpfully with that explanation. Because you talk about in the book that at some point, the idea of a chapter does get tied to a thing out there in the world, at least in some novels, 19th century Britain, the idea that a chapter is a day, which okay, you could probably argue that maybe we shouldn't care about days. I'm sure there's philosophers out there who do, but most of us are pretty happy to accept that days are real things out there. Um, So given that we've got, as you said, these two different authors that create chapters in two very different ways, yet have similar arguments about kind of, why do we have them? Do we need to have them? What are they actually doing or not doing? How do we then get to the idea of chapters being each a day that becomes really quite prevalent, at least in nineteenth-century Britain.
0: Yes, yeah, it does. And I, I will say, just as a by way of transitioning, um, that is not the case with uh, with either Tolstoy or Gaskell. Their their understanding of where chapters begin and end is much more flexible or multiple. I think partly because they are making an argument against the segmenting of time. They never. Tie it to something that would seem like a kind of natural fact about the world, but that is actually, to some extent, eccentric at least within British fiction. Which um, you know, as you've said, I do uh, have a not just an argument, but actually a kind of a, a sort of data set that I bring forward to show how common it is in Victorian fiction for something like the start of a chapter to be set at the beginning of a a day of narrative time and even more commonly than that the end of the chapter to occur or to to describe the end of a day often landing characters in bed Um, bedtime is often the way the chapters conclude or falling asleep so there is this very common suturing of or synchronization of readerly time to novelistic time through that diurnal frame. So here's one possible explanation, although I think it is one that requires uh, a kind of somewhat concession, I suppose you could say. It is, you could say that what this naturalization of the chapter does in 19th century fiction, or one of its causes, is that it is consequent upon something like, broadly put, industrialization. Um, As the sense of daily time shifts across the 19th century because of industrialization, um, because the way daily activities start to become more and more timed or assigned clock times, there is a way in which novel reading itself becomes increasingly understood as having a time of day, that time of day being evening, being that is after the industrial workday, um, And as Novel time becomes, or the time of novel reading becomes understood as primarily an evening pursuit. It may not be an accident that the internal timing of novels continually returns to the end of the day as something that narrates breaks. I mean, maybe more put more plainly, um, there is a kind of neat synchronization to the way in which chapters will end with something like a character's bedtime and you at bedtime are then permitted at the end of the chapter to say, well, I read, I read my chapter today, time to, time to put the book away and, 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 you know, turn in for the night. There's a, there's a neat potential or invitation to synchronization that occurs there. And it does seem then to kind of make the novel amenable to these new regimes of the days division often, you know, of course, because of industrialization, these divisions of the day are dictated by clock time. And yet here's the odd part about this. Um, That naturalization or synchronization of thinking about the chapter as a day of narrative time has a kind of backward turned or almost nostalgic aspect to it because the way in which Victorian novels tend to do this is not at all through any invocations of clock time but actually through what seems like a much older sense of the day is entirely produced by the path of the sun. Um, the, the time indications in these novels actually pre, really almost have nothing to do with clock time and seem to pre-exist it. Um, the rise of the sun, the falling of the sun, physiological processes like falling asleep in the evening, um, as, almost as if they're doing this kind of modernization and synchronization, but making it seem acceptable by rooting it in a time sense that seems to pre-exist the, the way in which the clock begins to dictate uh, industrial life. And, and I, I, I think it's this double strange double move. It's a kind of modernization, but in a sort of nostalgic way that allows this technique to really work and work in a way that it becomes, I think, innocuous, not easy to notice. Or so naturalized that it actually has really never been uh, explained as a characteristic feature of Victorian narrative.
1: And yet, I'm certainly going to have a hard time not noticing next time.
0: <laughs> it is <laughs> one of those things you 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 can't not notice it once it's been pointed out. Mm. Uh, but I, you know, in, in I, the last thing I'll say about this, maybe is that there is also here a reference back or a tie to biblical reading, Um, and particularly within Protestant countries where private reading of the Bible is something that is much more encouraged, there is a, um, for various reasons, maybe too too densely historical to get into at the moment, but for various reasons, there does develop a kind of general recommendation that what one does is one reads a chapter of the Bible a day. Um, Now, that just simply shifts into novel reading. It it it's as if there's a there's an openness that scriptural reading already produces to aligning chapters and days, that is taken up by the novel, and then actively used as a way of shaping the narrative itself.
1: Hmm. Okay, interesting to think about how those two things go together, um, and how it very much has developed quite a ways from where we started this. So if we think about kind of that development, that that's rather a lot of. Change and a lot of different ways that the chapter has been used, and it's not quite as straightforward as we might think. And in fact, you have this great sentence um, in the book that I'd like to ask you about regarding the chapter's role in the novel, being quote troubled, ironic, and part of the novel's inevitable tension with discontinuity. Given the last two answers you've just given us of authors going really not psyched about the chapter. <laughs> and then authors being like, yes, this is how everything is ordered and rhythmic and clock-like. Can you walk us through this sentence?
0: Sure. And I I think that the, um, as I wrote that sentence, I actually had another sentence in mind that wasn't mine, but was in fact from the uh, book historian and historian of reading, Peter Stallybrass, who said, and it's a sentence that stayed with me for quite a while, who said that the novel has only been a brilliantly perverse interlude in the long history of discontinuous reading. So what Staley means by this is that it is actually much more, uh, to use the loaded word, natural, to read in discontinuous ways than it is to read in rigidly linear continuous fashion. Um, and that particularly, you know, Bress says this in relation to modes of reading now, particularly with digital media, in the way that people lament that kind of discontinuous reading, uh, browsing, for instance, online, as if it's a kind of uh, modern invention that cuts against the the totally immersed ways people used to read. Staley Brass wants to point out, actually, it's it's immersive continuous reading that's the truly odd thing, and in some sense, truly unnatural. And uh, the novel, therefore, is doing something very odd to human norms of consumption. This to me bears on the chapter quite a bit Um, in the sense that the chapter as a technique of of segmentation always bears with it, even when it's not performing that work anymore, always bears with it a reference to discontinuous reading, particularly to starting and stopping, Um, to the fact that novels like to, in many ways formally, like to pretend can't be the case, to the fact that one cannot read novels in a single sitting it requires interruption. Um, Chapters gesture to that. Um, And as such, there's something, it's almost like a kind of foreign body within long narrative texts, something that long narrative texts have ingested, but with some discomfort. And there's something kind of alien about the chapter within a narrative text. They were not designed for narrative texts, they were designed for, as I've said, informational texts not to be read in continuous fashion, But now inserted as a paratextual technique into texts that insist upon their continuity. So what do you do with the purposes for which it was designed? You know, discontinuous access, citation, cross-reference, in a text that not only doesn't need those things but actually seems to be premised on on never having those things, on, on not wanting continuity disrupted. I mean, to To put this in in plainer terms, um, what do you do with the table of contents? And it is interesting that novels maintained tables of contents quite late in some cases. But those tables of contents have no informational content to them anymore. I mean, if if you pick up uh, uh, the table of contents to something like uh, an 18th century novel like Tom Jones or even uh, late Victorian novels like George Gissing's, what does one gather from a table of contents to novel chapters pretty much nothing. It can't help you locate anything. Chapter titles are not informational anymore. They're kind of loosely elusive. And yet they still persist, which is a very, very peculiar fact. Sometimes they can even persist somewhat in somewhat of a deliberately ironized fashion. So I suppose what I mean by this is that the the presence of chapters in fiction, it's kind of resistant to the project of immersive reading, but also therefore in a, you know, in a kind of dialectical fashion, because they're so resistant to that, they, they serve as a kind of magnet for meaning. Um, this, this kind of implicit puzzle always, how do you understand the presence of these breaks? Um, what are they doing in the story? What are they doing for us? Is there any way that they link us to the story itself? You know, as I said in, in Victorian Britain, they do through the through the matrix of of diurnal time or the day, but they don't have to, and that's that's a particular style at a particular moment in time. Um, so it's 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 the tension the novel has with its own necessary, but kind of begrudging discontinuity.
1: Hmm. All right, I'd like to talk about then the authors that were especially far on the begrudging side of the spectrum (laughs) when it comes to chapters, Um, and move from the particular moment of 19th century Britain, and kind of the style of that place and time to sort of latter half of the 20th century, I think we can reasonably say New York is a big part of where I'm going Mm -hmm. with this. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Can you tell us about the authors of literary novels in this time and place that Really are not so psyched about the chapter, um, and even in some cases consider it even embarrassing. What are they going on about?
0: So um, I think there are a number of reasons for this, and I, I, I actually use a sociological term to describe what has kind of befallen the chapter. And the really, I suppose you could say, starting uh, in the middle decades of the twentieth century, post-war, more or less, that it, it, the chapter undergoes a kind of status collapse. Um, and to be clear about this, um, the um, this is more the embarrassment of chaptering actually really only exists within a, a, a certain strata uh, stratum of 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 the novelistic world. I guess you could say the sort of high art reaches of the novel um, that begins to really have an embarrassment with it. The first problem i think that causes this embarrassment is that the chapter still has this kind of whiff will always carry with it this whiff of editorial intervention of the fact that uh it's either something you had to do or it's something that was done to the text it it still bears the marks of something let's say an editor or a publisher would would make you do and as such as a kind of derogation of authorial primacy, I mean, it's almost as if in, in this sort of the high, these higher reaches of the novel form, there's a, you know, what in film we'd call a kind of auteurist theory, that the, the author has to be in complete control of every aspect of the text. And the chapter seems to introduce a, a problem with intention. Um, again, you know, often because one is one feels obliged to chapter texts, or because others can do it for you. The chapter kind of affronts the idea of authorial primacy would be the first um, secondly i think increasingly chapters get articulated as not just a low form of textuality but even a kind of remedial form of textuality there's a you know there's an idiom that uh, was popularized in the last 30 40 years where when we speak of a certain kind of children's book we call them chapter books and a chapter book is a is a very particular Phase of the acquisition of literacy, right? It means that you are a competent enough reader in order to read something that can't be read in a single sitting. You have to have enough, uh, so I almost think of it as like the temporal equivalent of object persistence, right? You, you need to be able to put the text down, leave it and come back to it. And that you know, is associated with readers of a certain age. Yeah, you could say something like anywhere from six to eight or nine years old. And those books addressed to that group of children are called chapter books. They now are experiencing time as segmented. Well, what this does is it does associate the chapter with something like remedial literacy. And so, again, these kinds of higher forms of fiction tend to want to resist it because of that. Um, Also because it, you know, the chapter is still associated also with genre fiction with, uh, you know, say science fiction, mystery novels with, with, you know, supposedly lower forms of the, of the novel that are retain a linkage to children's literature. The higher art novel wants to detach itself from that. And then there's finally an interesting theoretical objection, I suppose you could say to the presence of chapters. And, and I, I, quote a couple of contemporary writers who, who are willing to, to make this argument uh, explicitly, which is that um, that chapters do not reflect, and again, this is a kind of holdover from, from the argument that Tolstoy makes, chapters do not reflect our perception of time. Um, the way this is usually put is time doesn't come in chapters. Um, and so therefore... Because the task of the novel supposedly is to accurately reproduce our phenomenological experience of time. we should rid the novel of chapters. These things are completely artificial. They do not reflect our perceptions. And you know, in my book, I have I, I actually kind of want to argue against that somewhat. Um, of course, it's true that time doesn't come in chapters. At a literal level, that's true, sure. Um, it's even somewhat banal to say that, but um, nor does time come in rhythms or measures or you know, every temporal art form has um, uh, some kind of mode of articulating time. I do think actually our perception of time is segmented. And there I do turn to cognitive science to explain the ways in which, as contemporary cognitive science explains it, we actually need the segmentation of time in order to process the stimuli that we receive. So I do wanna make an argument about that, but you can I, I, that's less important maybe than just noting the way in which there's a kind of quasi-realist argument that literary fiction authors will often make about chapters that they just simply don't reflect the way we we process the world. I actually think that's incorrect, but it's a, it's a pervasive argument, and, and it does kind of play into this embarrassment about, about the chapter.
1: Well, it sounds like you're not the only one who thinks that that might not be an argument they can fully get behind. Um, but it is interesting to kind of go to the end of the people who are most anti-chapter um, and mm-hmm. see kind of what their qualms are. But... They are a pretty small group, as you've just described. Um, and so it's worth kind of asking the, the maybe obvious question, because you've just said you don't necessarily agree with that. Um, I certainly don't agree with that. But also, like realistically, if we look at any book we can get our hands on, like they've, they've got chapters. Yes. We, we, we really do have them, whether it's <laughs> fiction or nonfiction. Um, and we don't think about them. So going back to the term used right at the beginning, the sociological norms, why do you think chapters have become so normative and so unquestioningly there, kind of no matter what type of book we're talking about?
0: I can think of three answers I might want to give to that, actually. So the great the first would be, um, I think, uh, something more like a cognitive explanation, which is that we still need... Uh, articulations of a text, divisions of, of it, in order to provide both a rhythmic sense and a kind of uh, occasional, let's say, relief from within longer narrative experiences. That it, I, I here again, this is I, by cognitive. I mean something like that. Uh, it is excessively fatiguing to experience narrative without pauses, and so as a technique of the pause, the chapters. Um, do do have a function still, um, even if that function isn't uh, something like as a locating device. So that there, I think there's a cognitive rationale for it. The second reason would be uh, essentially technological. And here I'll note, it's a kind of peculiarity that I, I discuss very briefly in the book, which is that when you look at what happens to contemporary novels that tend to refuse in one way or another chapters or refuse numerated units and you see the way they're remediated into particularly digital formats like ebooks, something kind of funny occurs. And my example here is, is a you know very well-known novel, uh, Tony Morrison's Beloved from the late 1980s. Morrison's novel does, as is very common in literary fiction, refuse the idea of numbered chapters. But when you look at uh, an edition of Morrison as an ebook, You're going to find a table of contents and that table of contents will have numbered chapters. Why do they have these things? And there's no informational content to that table of contents. There's no chapter titles. It doesn't tell you anything about what the novel includes, but what it does do is of course those chapter, those, you know, where it says chapter one in a digital table of contents, those are hyperlinks and you can click on them and you can find your place in the novel. So that is a kind of locating device that still seems necessary for long narrative texts, particularly in a digital format. So we still sort of need locating within long texts, and the chapter still provides a kind of grid that can do that. That's a technological uh, reason. And then the third, I think, is more broadly, I don't know what to say, ideological or, or philosophical, which is that chapters produce a kind of meta-language for a very difficult experiential question, which is that of how we do parse the passage of time in our own sense of our biographies, how we understand time's forward logic. Um, It's a meta-language that is for the the philosopher William James has a a term for this. He says the experience of what he calls co-conscious transition, which is how we feel transition moments in our lives through which certain things also survive across that transition. So this this combination of things that have both changed and remain the same or, or certain pivot points within ongoing experiences, which James thinks is, is actually one of the primary aspects of the fact that we live in time. Chapters provide a language for that. Um, and I do mention in the book the Recurrent popularity, once you begin, once you attune yourself to it, you you see it happening absolutely everywhere in in all kinds of discourses of using this term chapter to express a sense of the way in which you make sense of the time of your own existence. The way people will say something like, Well, I'm starting a new chapter of my life, or that chapter of my life is closed now. Um, it's It's an exceptionally useful meta language. It goes back to this technology of the book that is over two millennia old, but it still has life to it, and that would be, I think, it's it's uh, again, it's it, another rationale, if a bit more diffuse, for the fact that it it has a purpose still.
1: Hmm. No, those are those are some great reasons um, that we still have the chapter, and it's so embedded. So, thank you for taking us through those three categories, really. Um, Obviously the chapter is going to continue to be with us and there's so much detail in the book uh, that we've only sort of sketched out or hinted at here. So anyone listening who wants more, I promise there is more in the book, Uh, but it is available, it's out there. It's off, therefore, Nicholas, your desk. (laughs) Is there anything that you might be working on now that this big massive project is done, whether or not it's a book, whether or not it's on this topic (laughs) that you want to preview?
0: I'm, I, I, you know, because the book is rather large and took me a while, I'm not working on a book project at the moment. In fact, mm. I, I've decided to, to uh, restrict myself to, to more article length uh, projects for the time being. And right now I'm, I'm just begun writing an article on, I suppose you could say the contemporary discourses around interpretation and how it, interpretation happens. And I, the, the neater way of saying that I suppose would be that I'm, I'm, want to produce a kind of theory of this slang term that seems to have taken over in the last few decades for interpretation, which is this term the take. Um, I began to notice that both my students and colleagues and uh, you know people I follow on social media will refer to any kind of interpretation they offer as a take. Um, students will increasingly say, well, my take on this is or uh, I enjoyed your take on something and, I really do want to think about what changes about how we understand interpretation when our way of understanding how interpretive activity happens is through this mode of the take, right? What is a take? And how is it different than interpretation? So that's, that's the kind of, it's, it's a theoretical gambit I want to make just to, to uh, try to understand that bit of contemporary discourse very seriously as, as a sort of embedded theory about what it means to interpret something.
1: Hmm. all right well that sounds interesting and you know probably reasonable to take a break (laughs) (laughs) from the book project uh, because this one the book we've been talking about has a lot in it so for anyone who wants to get into more details the book is called the chapter a segmented history from antiquity to the 21st century published by princeton university press nicholas thank you so much for being with us on the podcast
0: thank you miranda this was a pleasure (laughs)